the recent events revolving around the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor have resulted in an outcry, not only in the respective cities in which these three black people died, but across the country and around the world. It's brought to bear not only the issue of deaths at the hands of police, but the lingering issue of inequality and injustice experienced by people of color here in the United States. Witnessing on video, one man being suffocated to death by an officer of the law, and another man chased down by a truck with armed men who took it upon themselves to deprive him of his rights and his life, gives rise to so many emotions, not least of which are anger and grief. There are those that react to this time with their usual posturing, explaining these events as the fault of a few bad cops or bad people who brought it upon themselves. They say that these people were not respectful of the law and the society that, at least on paper, is intended to treat all of its citizens equally. Everything is okay, except for a few bad apples. I've struggled with what to say about all this. Though I don't have a huge platform, I don't take lightly the voice that I do have in our small photographic community. I try to bring integrity and honesty to all my work, especially this podcast, and it's especially important to me to do so during times like these. So rather than using my singular voice, I invited two black photographers, Idris Solomon and Sharice May, to discuss recent events and the role of photography in documenting not only demonstrations, but the stories of these and other communities. Sharice May is a visual storyteller, an adjunct professor at Howard University, her alma mater in Washington, D.C., she is the president of Women Photojournalists of Washington, WPOW, and co-chair of the Photography Committee at the National Press Club. Idris Talib Solomon is a photojournalist and portrait photographer based in Brooklyn, New York. In 2016, he was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to photograph hip-hop culture in Ghana. He is also the host and producer of the Black Shutter Podcast. Regardless of your political persuasion, or personal life experiences with regards to race, I hope that you will take this time to listen. It's not required that you agree with everything that is said. It's not about right and wrong. It's just about listening. Something that all of us, regardless of race, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, or political affiliation, should do a lot more of. In this country, our Constitution promises us the freedom of speech. It's one of our rights as citizens. There is nothing in that document that promises that we'll be heard or listened to. That's a choice that has to be made by each of us, especially in moments of disagreement. The law provides us the freedom to speak our mind, but it's our shared humanity that requires us to stop talking and hear someone else out, especially when their experiences are not in line with our own. Because being listened to, being acknowledged, and having one's views and humanity respected should never be the privilege of a few. And it can all begin here and now by each of us standing up for each other and saying, I see you and I hear you. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame.
Thanks for doing this, guys. For the last couple of weeks, I have been thinking about what role I wanted the, the show to play in terms of the dialogue that's happening mm-hmm. uh, with this. And I thought it was better than me sort of giving voice to it myself, that it'd be a, much better to have a dialogue with people. Because one of the mm-hmm. things I was, I, was, I was realizing over the last two weeks is outside of my own household, I really haven't discussed this stuff in depth mm-hmm. with it. You know, my wife and I have talked about how we felt about it, but I really hadn't, beyond that, really considered what kind of conversations I I would want to have with people outside of my own home and my own family. And I think it is an important dialogue to have, especially uh, amongst photographers, photographers who are actually documenting what's happening right now, but who have also lived the experience of being Mm -hmm. color in this country. Just just briefly, I, I experienced the L.A. riots back in, I think it was 92, 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and I grew up in that neighborhood. I grew up mm. near Florence and Normandy, probably about two miles. My family's home is, is there. And one of the things that I remember very vividly, besides all the chaos that was happening, is, is the presence of a lot of photographers in those communities. Not just the photojournalists, but a lot of people who were just photographing independently. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the things that really bothered me about that is that a lot of those people had never come to the community to photograph mm-hmm. it before, mm-hmm. and that many of them would not come back afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And then later on, when I would look at portfolios, uh, like six months to a year later, I would see images uh, that were made during the riot. But they were without any sort of context or any sort of greater exploration of what had happened, what led to those those events happening, and how things were changing. And that spurred me to work on a project that I've been working on now for thirty years on downtown Los Angeles, largely because I felt like at the time this was years before it became what it is now in terms of gentrification, but it was a part of Los Angeles I had grown up in and I felt what had been dismissed to a great degree. And I just wanted to, you know, use my camera to sort of illustrate what I thought was beautiful and interesting about a part of Los Angeles that was thriving and important to a minority community here in Los Angeles. Now it's become gentrified, and now it's completely a very, very different thing. But as I see the events of the last couple of weeks, I have thought very much the same thing. You're seeing all these people going out and making photographs, and I just felt like, you know, us as photographers, regardless of race, we have to think about not just the kinds of pictures that we make, but those pictures are intended for Right. And the impact they can have, especially if those of us who are out there making photographs are not working photojournalists. And and I just wanted to have a sort of a dialogue with both of you because you guys are both working photographers on the East Coast, photographing these events and have but have been photographing, you know, the events of not only American society, but black cultural society before and are gonna, gonna continue doing this. Mm-hmm. And I just would love to hear first your own personal, uh, your, how you are both, how you both are personally experiencing these events. And then we can get into a much greater conversation in terms of the role of photography now and going forward. Sharice, I think you can take it since you've actually been out in the field covering some of this. Okay. 
Well, I have to say, first and foremost, as a black woman, I have a personal stake and experience with what's going on. I have my own personal stories of, you know, experiencing racism. I can remember as far back as I was in third grade. I think I was in third grade when I first was called a nigger. From there, I became more aware of that. And it has carried through to the woman I am today. Um, I've had experiences of being stopped um, while driving my car and questioned whose car is this? Where are you going? Where do you live? You know, and I broke no laws. I've had experiences of male, male family members and friends who have had violent interactions. So um, having that personal story, it gives me a perspective when I go in and I'm actually covering um, the current, the current things that are going on now with the protest and the demonstrations that are happening all over. To me, what I will say is this time it feels different. I've covered protests and things before, but this time it feels like the youth are really, what, what I've seen, what I've noticed is the youth are more engaged and they're on fire and they're serious. Um, you can see that there are so many young people out there and they're organized. They have an agenda. They have action items. And they're calling for certain things to be done or they will continue, you know, with the protests, with the work. That feels very different because it's a stronger it's a stronger voice now. The other thing I'm seeing that's different out there are um, there are more white people out there this time. Whereas before it was mostly black people who were calling, you know, saying, stop doing this to me. And calling for a change. Now you have white youth who are out there as well as I saw older people too. But like I said, it's been mostly like a younger movement in terms of who are really out there in the numbers. With them having what I experienced yesterday was they have printed out their agenda and these action items and they've given it to their legislative representatives. Um, they're calling them. They're following up. So that's been probably like the biggest thing I've seen is that the youth are more engaged, which they have time and they're not giving up and they're not scared. Um, that's the other thing. You know, they're not scared to voice the problems that they see yeah. and they're not scared to demand for these changes. Well, this time around, I've been closer to home. And I've been watching some of my friends out there really covering this protest top to bottom and like with a, uh, such a high level of quality. It's amazing. It's one of those things where fast forward 20, 30, 40 years and 2020 is in the history books. I would be proud to say that I know a lot of the photographers who were documenting this time in our history. So I've been close to home. You know, I have a five-year-old son. And for me, the question of should I be out there covering this or should I be here covering my son? And that's been a big question mark throughout the last week and a half when, you know, the protests began. And last night was the first night that, you know, I told my wife, 
I'm going to go out there. There were a few events happening and I picked one that was close to home and I packed up my gear and I went out. And by the time I got there, the crowd had already dispersed and I was online trying to figure out where, if, if there was something else happening that was close enough that I can get to. And the social media feeds had it updated at that time. So I just said, all right, let me just go home. And when I got home, I started seeing all the feeds update. And I just, at that point, decided to stay home. But, you know, my wife was worried, rightfully so. I would have been choosing to go out after the curfew that was set in New York, which means that just walking to my car, I could have just been arrested. Just walking to the car or driving car, and I'm, I'm seeing footage of police officers yanking people out of their car after after curfew. So those are things that, you know, I have to take into consideration. And, you know, I didn't grow up with a father figure at home. So the last thing I want to do is put myself in the situation where I'm not at home for my son. So with that, I do know that there are other ways that we can be protesting and we can be revolutionizing, you know, it's not just a one size fits all type of situation. You know, um, we can revolutionize by reading and informing ourselves, equipping ourselves with enough knowledge and information so that the wall is not pulled over our eyes anymore. We can write, you know, um, we can contribute with words. You know, I'm seeing a lot of photographers being jerked around with their licensing. So it's also bringing awareness to how we can properly get our business stuff to, together so that we're not getting jerked and we get the proper value for our photos. There's a lot of different ways that we can contribute to this protest without being in the front lines with our cameras. And another thing is, yeah. I have to ask myself, like, am I, am I prepared to go into a protest as a photographer? And for me, that means putting aside the art part of the photography and being there for the right cause, the right reasons, and also understanding that if I choose to go as a professional photographer, that my camera is my weapon. But it's hard for me to feel like my emotions won't rise up and I'll put the camera down and I'll pick my fist up or I'll pick up something else and want to like really like get aggressive and violent if, if the time calls for that, you know? So there's a lot of mixed emotions for me going into something like that. It's like, when do I put the camera down? When do I like go at somebody's neck, you know? And it's, I don't want to have to be put in a situation where I'm weighing those options, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely feel you. Cause it's not like you're covering an event that is about somebody else's experience. Mm-hmm. This is so much about our lifelong experience mm-hmm. being subject to overt racism and microaggressions and all that other other stuff. I mean, as you said, Cherise, I mean, it's great to see the youth out there really taking this up mm-hmm. as uh, the cause. And it's always been the youth that have affected these sort of great changes. I had to admit to myself this morning when I was really thinking about it, how much I had come to accept my experience as a person of color in this country, how I have grown to sort of anticipate that I may have less than ideal experience with the police, or I may have to contend with some sort of microaggressions from someone, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I leave, there's not a day that I don't 
leave my house thinking about the possibility that something may happen, not to the extent that happened to, to George Floyd, but it's happened enough to know that today there's a possibility that I might have to deal with something. And how do I sort of pre prepare myself in the way that I dress, in the way that I speak, in the way I interact with different people to minimize the possibility that it can have, happen, right? Yeah. And how I've just sort of come to accept that that is part of my, my existence here in this country. You know, I've had the experience of being outside of the country. And I remember the first time I left the, the country and I went to Europe and how odd it felt to be looked at not as uh, black or Afro-Latino, but as an American. Oh, you're, the, you're an American, right? Okay. That's the way people were identifying me and speaking to me. And to think that, wow, there's a different, I can have a different experience in how people react to me that isn't based on the color of my skin. But I think that is sort of the, the burden that a lot of people until recently didn't really completely understand is that sort of every day sort of that, that that anticipation of something that may happen, even if it doesn't happen that day. It's kind of like, okay, today I didn't have to deal with it, but tomorrow I might, or next week I might. And, you know, nobody nobody wakes up thinking that they're going to be the next George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, you know? Oh, no, we, no. we don't wake up thinking that, but it's in the back of our heads that something can happen and, and things could escalate to the point, like, very fast. To you know, and we we're not considering that, but we know that that's part of our existence. And to your point, 2016, I moved to Ghana for eight months. I was out there with my family, and for the first time in my life, like I felt like really at ease, you know. And there was there was a you know there was a transitional stage where I had to understand that I'm bringing my Western culture into their culture. You know, and although I'm black and I'm dark skinned and everybody, ex ex you know, they welcome me with open arms, like welcome home, brother. Like, how long have you been away? You know, those types of things, which was great. There was still a culture shock, you know, and, you know, I, I had to recognize my privilege as a, a black American mm -hmm. going into into West Africa. But after that transitional stage, there was a, a it was a lot of ease as far as not having to worry about being profiled or being attacked because of my skin or any of those things. You know, there were a lot of subtle differences that I had to, um, you know, get accustomed to. But I was like really relaxed and at ease, you know, and coming back here is just like the same shit all over again. You know, and, you know, when people talking about repatriate, you know, go back home, you know, it's for a reason, you know, it's not just like fluff. There's, it's like, if we take the, you know, take all of the education and information that we have here and slowly but surely like, you know, move to all, all parts of the continent, we can build that up and then not have to deal with a lot of the racial stuff. But at the same time, understand that being a black American, being descendants of slaves from, of, of enslaved people in this country means that this land is just as much ours as white folks. So that's where there's a, a big dilemma and it's a big challenge for us trying to get some equality. Yeah. The other thing is when I said things are different, I, um, I don't have any children, but I have, you know, family and friends and what I'm discussions that I've had with them has been, they're having to have different conversations with their kids. Now it's become more intense 
and their kids know what's going on and they're scared. Um, I was talking to um, my cousin and his son was fearful of going out because he felt what happened to George Floyd would happen to him or his dad. So the conversations have become more difficult, more intense and parents. And I think some of what I saw out there too were families with their kids. Part of that, I believe is families trying to show their kids that we will not be dominated by fear. Um, The other part of that is to show them the power of protest Mm -hmm. and to be able to be out there and show them there are more people that are with you than there are against you. And to show them that you can do something no matter what it is. So, you know, talking to them, you know, a lot of them aren't going down to where the main protests are happening, but they're, as um, Adrice was saying, they're doing other things to help um, with the protest mm-hmm. or doing other things that can be done at home. So they're not exposing their kids, um, you know, to the danger, you know, of that. So that's the other piece as well, is that it's kind of, it's permeated to the youngest you know, I, I saw um, little kids, one, three years old, one to three years old with signs marching. I saw little kids in strollers with signs. So it's definitely it's definitely different this time. And my hope is that this is not just a temporary anger. This is not just a temporary let's march, you know, for a couple weeks or so in then it just kind of dies down. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hope is that what comes out of this are um, is legislation and other things that you know make it better to live here. And like I said, the youth are really taking taking the lead on this, and they are following up with their legislators. They are calling uh, for people to register to vote and to vote in November. So hopefully, this energy will continue and it won't just stop once it kind of kind of like I think about once people feel like their conscience is a little clearer and they get the image of the video seeing George Floyd die with the knee in his neck out of their head. Mm-hmm. Oh, once they see it so much that it just becomes numb. Mm-hmm. Like you, you see it and you don't have any more emotion to it because mm-hmm. you've seen it so many times. But we haven't seen much change after some of these really intense protests over the years. But what I think is different now is that technology makes sharing information a lot easier, a lot quicker. And I remember during the civil rights era, I remember reading about what they considered their modern day Twitter at the time was having somebody, you know, stationed at a phone and there will be like a, a protest happening in, you know, in Alabama or something. And somebody would run to the closest phone, send a wire to that person, and that person will write up the article or whatever, updating everybody. And then, so in like a day or two, they'll have a printed, you know, um, article about the current protests happening at that time. And that was like their Twitter, in a sense, so that people in all these different states, probably metropolitan areas, were able to be updated on what was going on. Well, I didn't know that. And, and now it's Twitter. 
You know, now it's, it's people organizing through specific Instagram accounts and using Instagram stories to be like, hey, this group, Group A, that was at Washington Square, we're headed southwest right now to the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge crew head north and we're going to converge and meet and then we're all going to go to Barclays Center at three o'clock or whatever, you know. It's, it's like that organized now and that's a difference, you know. What I was saying also was that until these editors, publications, corporations, until their bottom line is affected, nothing's really going to change. Right. You know, but once we start to organize in a way where we take our dollars and show them like we understand our value, we're not going to support the bullshit that they've been doing all these years. Then you start to see some changes. But then at the same time, we have to question all those changes genuine or all those changes just to like put a bandaid over their wallet, you know. Thanks to all of you who have chosen to support the show financially over these many years. Your generous donations provided me the means to create the show. And when I began the podcast in 2006, I had no idea what I was doing. I had just become familiar with podcasting and knew nothing about recording and editing audio. I just had an idea and I just did the work to figure it all out. Along the way, there were people who wrote me and told me how much they appreciated what I was doing, even though it was less than perfect. They encouraged me to keep moving forward and on occasion helped me with donations, which helped to ease the load out of my own pocketbook. There were a lot of mistakes that I made along the way, but through it all, many of you stood by me and let me know that I was doing a good thing. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. Even as well-established as this show is today, your contributions are still valuable to the work that we do. So if you believe in the show and it makes a difference in your photographic life, become a Patreon supporter today. You can begin for as little as $5 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. If you've been thinking about doing this for a long time, today is the day to finally do it. Thanks. Yeah, I've seen all those, all these corporations that are putting out these things, you know, on Twitter, on social media about supporting the movement. And it's like, you know, you wouldn't have seen that a year ago. But yeah, how how lasting is it, and how significant will it be? Uh, that's that's the real challenge. But it seems like just because there's such an awareness, cross sectional awareness across all these different peoples, that I think that long standing change is a much a greater possibility today than it was six months ago. So that's really, really heartening. Getting back to y- y- your choice to stay at home. I mean, that was my choice back in 92, and it's been my choice now. Not largely, not just because I didn't think I could get great pictures there. That wasn't an issue for me. Is that I knew that I wanted to make different pictures and that the pictures that I want to make are about the people and the community that I feel are not being, whose stories aren't being told. Yeah, that's always been at the focal point of my of my mind. And I know that both of you guys have worked on personal projects, you know, but I, I want to kind of talk about that, because regardless of what people are, are doing now in terms of the, um, photographing the demonstrations and what how those images are, get used, I think that the images that people produce of the black community, 
the lesbian gay community, the Latino community, the Asian community that tell intimate personal stories are the kind of images that I have are incredibly important to really kind of affect change. Because I think it's when people get to relate to the others, to the others' humanity, that can go a long way. And I think that that we can't lose sight that regardless of whether, you know, mainstream media decides to publish that or not, or pay us adequately or, 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 or for that work, that shouldn't keep people from creating the work. And as you said, with Twitter and Facebook and websites, we, we have the means by which we can get that, that, those stories and those pictures out there. But I really want, would love to hear from the both of you about the importance of that, that kind of imagery, those kinds of stories from your own personal uh, point of view. Yeah. Well, I would say that there are some things that I'm working on that speaks to that, that very thing you're talking about with underserved not only communities, but underserved issues, marginalized issues. That's really big for me. And what I've come to, like, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. So in the midst of everything else, you know, and that was another thing that was different because I had to wear, wear a mask all day yesterday in the heat, (laughs) you know, out there. So that, that was different getting used to breathing through it. I would have to say during this, the whole coronavirus where I've had time at home to really think about what I'm doing, my career, what I want to do, what's important to me. I've realized that that's one of the things that is important that I want to do those stories of marginalized people and issues. So I've actually been working, like I said, I've been working on some stories I'm continuing to work on them and I feel that there, there are things that need to be told because I don't like when the full story is not told. I don't like when someone comes in and especially how you were talking about before during the, the riots in LA in the nineties. I don't like when somebody just comes in like a helicopter and just comes in real quick, gets something that they're looking at as possible possibly winning awards or, you know, like a Pulitzer Prize or something, and then they're back out. But like you said, they're not telling those stories of the community of the people before and after. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, it's really important to tell that full story and to tell those other stories, you know, from the community. So it's personal work. You know, it's not that like I'm working on something for a publication, but I've just come to the realization that, I'm just going to have to do the work myself and whether a publication wants to publish it or not, I'm still going to tell the story. For me, photography was not, and is still not the primary focus for me professionally. I sort of started photography as a, as a byproduct of being an art director. So I have like, I come from advertising and digital design background and that's been my my forte for several years, photography was just a way for me to be creative without sitting behind a computer for hours. So when I decided to become serious about photography and I realized I kept spending more money on camera bodies and lenses and things, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm spending all this money. It's a lot of money on for this gear. 
to me, I, I needed something to to justify the cost. And I said, you know what? I'm talking to myself. I'm like, yo, Ed, if you drop this 1500 on this body, you better <laughs> use this because, <laughs> yo, you know you ain't got $1,500 like that to just let this get dusty. So I said, you know what? All right, Ed, yeah, this is what we're going to do. When you buy this camera, you're going to buy this gear, you're going to go and tell stories in your community, stories that are undertold, misrepresented. You know, you're going to tell stories that you know, you want to see out there that you haven't seen, right? From your perspective, a black man with a camera, a black person with a camera telling stories in a black community is a, is a specific perspective that we have. And that to me, I said, I'm going to tell these stories and I'm going to share them. And that's it. And that is the justification for me spending money on this gear. Now, if anything additional happens for me telling these stories and, sh- and sharing them, like if I get attention from an editor or a publication or whatever, or it gets published, that's a cherry on top, but that's not the goal. But something in me said, if you tell these stories and you spend like good time on them and, and, and you treat them with care, then they will get the attention that they deserve. So that's exactly what happened. And I started out telling the story, um, it's called Blackbirds based in, um, based on a ballet school in Harlem. And what happened was that story got some attention and got me some sit downs with editors, uh, mostly white editors or across a bunch of different publications. And then I started chasing assignments. I started chasing daily assignments. Then I realized like I'm getting a bunch of assignments that I don't care about. And my self-worth, my self-esteem was being, I was placing my self-esteem in the hands of these gatekeepers who would either say, yes, you can go shoot this assignment or no, that's not right for us. Right. And I'm sitting there feeling like shit because I thought that I was, you know, I was feeling like I'm a good photographer, but my value was slowly diminishing the more I was trying to chase these daily assignments that don't mean anything to me. So at a certain point, I just said, F it all. I'm not contacting nobody. Like, if you want to work with me, cool. If not, I'm not I'm not reaching out to any editors anymore, you know, and I'm just going to focus on telling these stories again. Go back to the root. Go back to the original reason why I'm, I started doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kept telling these stories and I was feeling better about myself. And then I eventually moved on to uh, doing video. The first mini documentary that I created was about a, a black lacrosse director in Brooklyn. And, you know, these are, and, and that's, that, that went on to get like accepted into like a film festival. So it's like the more I focus on the things that are important to me and do it because it means something to me and not because I'm trying to please somebody else or get somebody else's attention, those do pretty well. And it just, it just, it's just a reminder that the, if as a collective, as a group, as a community, if we, focus on ourselves and focus on bringing stuff back home, what kind of goodness is going to transpire from that, you know? That's great. I'm a bit older than both of you, I think, probably. So I I grew up with not seeing people who look like me on television or Mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere Mm -hmm. else. And I think that that's something that a lot, a lot of people have experienced to, you know, lesser, greater degrees. And it, it has an impact on it. And one of the things as 
as a photographer choosing to focus, you know, primarily of people of, 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 of color, even with my street work, has been, is born from that. And Senator Booker said, uh, had a speech regarding the, uh, the Emmett Till bill that's currently in the, in the Senate. And one of the statements that he said was, America, do you see me? And one of the experiences I've had being on the street is having black men come up to me and say, take my picture. I've never had that with someone white or Asian. You know, take my picture, take my picture. And I think it speaks to that statement that Senator Booker said, is like, see me. Because I think to some extent, people of color feel like they're not seen. They're, they're looked at, but they're not truly seen. And I think that one of the purposes that I have as a photographer when I choose to focus on people of color is that I want them seen and I want myself seen. And that is, is I think, at the heart of why I think photography for me is so powerful and why it's so important at the same time. So when I see the images of the events of this past week, some of which is really exceptional, some really great work being being done. But it's the other work, the personal work, that when I see these stories being told that mean so much more to me. But along those lines, there were some, I had a conversation with a couple of photographers about, you know, people who are not of the community telling those stories, you know, and whether that is okay today. And I felt like for me, it's it's not so much the color of the person making the photographs, but how educated they are about the the issue, the people, and the circumstances. It's like, well, why why is it you? It, why is it important to you to tell those stories, right? And why do why do you need to be the person to tell that story? So if you're white going into a black community, or if you're a straight man going into a you know, a, a community of transgender doesn't mean that you can't make those photographs, but you have to ask yourself, why are you making those photographs? Are you, are you only making those photographs because, oh man, I would be able to make some bomb photographs going in there. You know, I think that it's your, the intention behind them is what it's, is at its core. Because I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's fair for me to tell somebody that they can't photograph something because of their color of their skin their sex, their sexual orientation, anything like that. But I think that you have to ask yourself, why are you making those pictures? And I just welcome what you, you, your thoughts on, on that idea. I agree with the, you know, coming from the perspective of purpose, because purpose will drive your actions. For me, what I don't like to see is when photographers come into a community or a situation for a one-off. Um, just to come in to profit from that situation. You know, it's it's been a culture of seeing like the photos that win these big awards that they're usually very painful and, yeah. you know, very sensitive, very personal. And to have that and to see a photographer celebrate, you know, from that because they got this money, they got this award, like really pains me. So I truly believe in educating to know like what's going on, telling the full story and thinking about the purpose, you know, for going in. 
you know, are you going in to exploit? Are you going in to tell that story and to tell it fairly, not just focusing on one thing, but telling the whole story? Yeah. Yeah. Not just going in and in, in sort of telling stories of trauma mm-hmm. in any variety because of how dramatic a photograph mm-hmm. can be and justifying it by saying, you know, you're exposing the world to it, but that the other side of what it means to be a, whatever person is being documented, that that's not being reflected in, in the greater imagery. It seems to re, sort of reinforce a lot of the sort of the negative perceptions that people have of exactly. a people with these amazing award-winning photographs. So that's a really good point. Well, well the other thing too is it causes a um, mistrust with people when they deal with photographers and you know, there's been talk in oh, yeah. among photographers about being able to connect um, with who you're shooting or photographing, I should say. Stop using the word shooting. It's become a thing of people see. They see like these photos and the awards and the things like that uh, profiting off of trauma. And they're hesitant a lot of times to trust and let you into their space. And another thing I could say is in covering what's going on now is I feel like people look at me and they're like, oh, well, she looks like me. And there's more trust because I've seen it happen where they may say they may not want, you know, my uh, white colleague or photographer to take a certain picture. But then I come along and they're like, hey, sis, you know, da, 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 you know, just start talking and they let me take their picture. And a lot of times I would, if there was something where I thought it was like a portrait that needed to be seen, whether, you know, something they had written on their mask or, you know, a a certain thing that they were doing. And I would just motion to ask for permission instead of just shoving my camera in their face. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I've, I've struggled with the term documentary photographer or photojournalist. And because I didn't really go to school for photojournalism or journalism at all, I think that I settled on documentary photographer. And that's because I felt like photojournalism is very reactive to the to the moments that are happening, like right now, currently. And to cover a protest, you have to, especially uh, black protests, because there's so much emotion, so much anger, so much tension rightfully so built up for hundreds of years and then you know the cops police respond with their own level of aggression so that's just a bad combination right so it it eventually leads to photos that have that tension in them right and for me I didn't want to necessarily be reactive to just going in and 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 capturing that amount of tension and the reason why I, I lean more towards documentary photography is because with that, I can I can kind of craft a different story, a different narrative, still based around protest and uprising and revolution, but told in a way that takes a little bit more time and that can actually tell multiple stories at once, you know? Um, so that's sort of how I, I look at it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong and um, definitely have a lot of respect for the uh, photographers out in the field, in the front lines, documenting this because there's a need for these photos, these images to be made. Am I the one to make them? I don't know. And I know that I can go and make some of these photos, 
but it's a choice that I, for me to stay home and find other ways to contribute. And in regards to your response to your question about if white photographers can go into these events and take pictures, I agree. I don't think that anybody should be barred from documenting history, right? But I do think that I agree that there should be a level of awareness on their parts. The voyeuristic lens should be left at home. Don't put that in your bag, right? And I think that even if there are white photographers who are awake, absolutely are awoken to like the issues that are that that black folks or whatever community that they're photographing, if they're aware of those, um, the situation that they're in and they can empathize and they have compassion and they understand the full picture, even for those photographers who have all of these things, they can't be the only ones photographing. So even if they are being brought in to photograph these events, cool. Who else do you have photographing these events? Because we need our voice and our lens and our perspective, you know, included in that batch of photos, you know? So that's, that's, that's what I feel about that. That's an excellent point. Well, thanks to the both of you for just sharing your time, your thoughts. I, I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, this is a conversation I needed. I didn't realize how much I needed it until I, I sat down with you guys. So thank you for that. And um, my last question to each of you is what I ask uh, each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered and who and uh, and why you're choosing that photographer. So, well, well, first of all, Ibari and X, thank you for having me today with the um, Idris. The photographer, I think you already had the first one I was going to recommend, which is Mike, Michael McCoy. I think you've already mm-hmm. interviewed him. I'm not sure if you've interviewed Layla Amatula Barin. No, I haven't. Okay, there you go. There you go. Actually, it would be two. Layla and then Delphine. Layla and Delphine make up a, a collective called MFOM, M-F-O-N. And they work to expose photographers of the African diaspora. Female, female photographers. Yeah. Yeah. So they put in a lot of work you know, for that and have actually exposed me to to some that I didn't, you know, I didn't know about. Um, so they're putting a lot of great work to get exposure to photographers who have not, you know, gotten that exposure. And also they have a, um, they curated an exhibit, um, which I have some work a part of in at the um, African-American Museum in Philadelphia. And it's called um, Visual Meditation. On Bla- and I'm messing up this name, on Black Masculinity. And it's 50 photographers that are a part of this exhibit. And it's actually a permanent exhibit at the museum. So I would recommend the two of them together mm-hmm. because separately, they're, they're really, they have powerful stories. And together with MFON, they, they do a lot of work to expose photographers. Well, thank you for that. Sure. Uh, and Andrews? Do you have Michael Santiago? Have you? On my radar. Yeah, Mike San Diego. His name uh, pops up a lot. Yeah. Uh, speak to him. And also, I would say Lindsay Weatherspoon. She's really good to have. And one more is uh, Michael Noble Jr. Well, 
Again, thank you for those recommendations. Thank you for your time. Be safe out there. Yes, thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, you, too. you guys. You too. All Come right, man. Take care. Thanks to Idris and Cherise for joining us. Find out more about them and their work by visiting their websites. You can learn more about Cherise by visiting charisemay.com and Idris at isolomonphoto.com. And also make sure to check out his podcast, The Black Shutter, at blackshutterpodcast.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or a one-time or reoccurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Tom Spadig, Bahipada, Chandra Achberger, and Beverly for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge for making great photographs and another way for you to support the show. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.